Welcome to Hosted Payload, the satellite and space law podcast. From the Wiley Law Firm in Washington, D.C., I'm Henry Gola. Back in the 50s, the Russians definitely drew first blood in the space race, but much like Ricky Bobby, the Americans knew that for getting people on the moon, if you're not first, you're last. This ain't our first rodeo on Hosted Payload, so Danielle Pinieres of Planet drops by to analyze the 2018 Neil Armstrong biopic, First Man. But first things first, Jillian Quigley joins me to report on all the satellite and space law news you can use in the Orbital Debrief. It's time for the Orbital Debrief, which means it's time to bring on Jillian Quigley. Jillian, how are you? Anything planned for Thanksgiving? Hey, Henry. It's great to be here and to be back. And I do have some very fun plans for Thanksgiving. Um, I'm in Boston right now. And then this year, we're going to have a totally new Thanksgiving tradition. I'll be running in a 5K on Thanksgiving morning. How about you? All right. All right. So you're doing a, you're doing a turkey trot. That that's that's cool. I've I've done those before on on Thanksgiving, and uh, my daughter Rose actually did her girls on the run 5K this past weekend. So there's 5Ks all around. Uh, I'm heading to the middle of Virginia to go into an Airbnb with some folks from my wife's side of the family. But enough about Thanksgiving. What is going on in space and satellite news? As always, it seems like there's a a lot going on. Uh, First up, uh, the 2023 World Radio Communication Conference, or as we like to call it, WRC23, or WARC, kicks off on November 20th in Dubai. Um, There's a number of space-related items on the agenda this year. Um, Among them are whether to adopt some new allocations for Earth Exploration Satellite Services and Fixed Satellite Service uh, Earth Stations in Motion, whether to add inter-satellite service allocations uh, to the radio regulations to facilitate inter-satellite links, and then uh, we're also likely to see some discussions about possible WARC 27 future agenda items relating to -to direct-to-device spectrum, for mobile satellite services and equivalent power flux density limits for NGSO systems. But since I'm an international law nerd, the agenda item I'm most excited about is agenda item 1.6, which is going to consider regulatory provisions to facilitate radio communications for suborbital vehicles. And so among other things, the member states are going to examine the status of suborbital vehicles and whether they need to be classified as very high aircraft, low spacecraft, or just an entirely new thing altogether. And I'm also hoping that this agenda item is gonna help spur some conversations about the legal demarcation between airspace and outer space, which is kind of a nerdy topic, but it's very fun. Uh, And the question really gets to the heart of international space law because territorial sovereignty extends to airspace, but it doesn't extend to outer space. And so the distinction will have implications on the rules of engagement in both domains, as well as what types of activities and technologies can be permitted in suborbital environments, and also how they're regulated. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what discussions end up taking place on that. How large is the international law nerd community? There are at least five of us. Oh, wow. Okay. That's good. Five and growing. All right. Interesting (laughs) food for thought there. What uh, do we have going on stateside this month? Well, on November 15th, the White House's National Space Council unveiled its new legislative proposal for how to regulate novel commercial space activities to comply with treaty obligations under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty. 
the item proposes to split authority for space activities between the Department of Commerce's Office of Space Commerce, or OSC, and the FAA's Office of Commercial Space Transport Transportation. The FAA, which regulates commercial launch and reentry, would also begin overseeing human spaceflight and the transportation of items in space. Commerce's OSC would be responsible for unmanned activities that aren't regulated by the FAA, including in-space servicing, assembly and manufacturing, or ISAM. Um, I'm interested to see how heavily the two regulators are going to start leaning on experimental licensing, especially uh, when it comes to handling regulated activities using artificial intelligence or other highly novel technologies or applications. And of course, if these novel uses need spectrum, they still have to go to a third agency, the FCC. So areas are definitely moving targets for these regulators to, uh, to keep up with. It'll be interesting to see where this one goes. Yes, definitely. Um, and my third update also relates to new space legislation, but this time from Congress. Mere hours after the National Space Council released its legislative proposal, the House of Representatives Committee on Science, Space, and Technology met to mark up the Commercial Space Act of 2023, also known as H.R. 6131. The bill, if passed, would vest exclusive authority for regulating novel space activities to the Office of Space Commerce. Uh, spectrum and launch activities would continue to be re regulated by the FCC and FAA, respectively. Uh, the committee didn't hold a final vote on the bill during markup, so we'll need to wait until after Thanksgiving to see if it gets off the ground. All right. Lots of to, to work through there for agency jurisdiction. Interesting issues. Thanks so much for these updates, Jillian, and have a great Thanksgiving in Boston. Thanks. You too. What is your goal time for your 5K? Oh, um, I'm hoping for sub 45, but it's been pretty busy, and so I haven't been able to get out as much. So My 10-year-old daughter just ran it in 30 minutes. So uh, uh, Last year open. I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to do fewer orbital debriefs for you to hit that goal. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Welcome back to Hosted Payload. Danielle Pinieres is Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance at Planet, a leading provider of global daily satellite imagery and geospatial solutions. Danielle, welcome to Host of Payload. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the 2018 film First Man, stars Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. The movie follows Armstrong starting in 1961 and through several personal tragedies until the monumental Apollo 11 moon landing in July 1969. Gosling teamed up again with La La Land director Damien Chazelle for First Man, which took home an Oscar for Best Achievement in Visual Effects. The film boasts an impressive 84 on Metacritic and is labeled a, quote, must-see, end quote. Danielle, in FCC parlance for First Man, Petition to deny or comments in support? Comments in support, for sure. Tell me why. I was really impressed by this film. Um, first of all, I came to it with not a lot of background and knowledge about the Gemini program that led up to the Apollo landings or about uh, Neil Armstrong himself. And so it was really interesting um, for me to understand a little bit more about him and about um, the, the NASA space program that, that led to 
the moon landing. Um, so it was, it was fascinating. It was really well done. Um, I think one of the things that I found most striking was the way that they put you in the, in the, in the seats of the astronauts themselves. And so things like you see and feel the shaking of the spacecraft and, um, and just feel the anxiety of having to, you know, work out things while a spacecraft is tumbling, um, in orbit. And, uh, so you really kind of get a, as much as you can on the ground, a feel for what that might've been like, um, followed by, you know, for instance, when Neil Armstrong's coming down the ladder onto the moon, you know, utter silence in comparison right. to, um, to the, the intensity of space flight. So that was really cool. Yeah. A lot of those, uh, a lot of those sort of first person, um, um, parts of the movie were chaotic, right? Alarms yeah. going off and things like that. But yeah, there was, it, compare that to the silence when, when he does get on the moon, it, it, it was pretty spectacular. Definitely wanted the viewer to feel like they were in the X-15 space plane at the beginning of the movie, Gemini 8, the lunar landing research vehicle that malfunctions. So how would you describe those scenes if you were to use adjectives? What, 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 how would you describe those scenes? Intense. Intense, Intense. And, and chaotic was a good one uh, with yeah. the alarms and everything going off. But in a, in a really interesting way, it gives, gave me a new appreciation for what, what that must have been like. Yeah. So I was watching at least part of it with with my girls and they they use the word claustrophobic is how they yeah. described it, because they're like, is that real? Did they recreate that? Because they kind of just they had to, you know, push them in kind of lying down into this little tin can, basically. And then and then they you know, in each scene where where they're going off on a mission, they close that lid. Right. And it just yeah. it's like you are sealed in there. So I thought. I thought, you know, they're only 10, but I thought that was a great. That was a great <laughs> choice of words. I think I actually, in yeah. talking to my husband about it too, I think I said that same thing. Like, oh, this is making me feel kind of claustrophobic. It's really yeah. intense. What was the scariest out of, out of all the, out of all these, these scenes where we follow Armstrong, what was the scariest or most terrifying for you that, that he endured uh, on his way uh, through Apollo 11? Yeah, so many, <laughs> so many of these. They did a great job highlighting in the movie. Probably um, the, the most, the, the scariest for me was probably the um, the Gemini spacecraft tumbling in orbit, and yeah. you know they're getting very near to passing out uh, as a result of that intensity, and then find a way to Neil Armstrong finds a way to stabilize the spacecraft, and that. That was amazing um, and kind of harkens back to that earlier part of the movie where he is on the training, yeah. the, the trainer vehicle where it kind of tumbles, it looks like a amusement park ride, <laughs> tumbles people over and over yeah. uh, in training and he's like, let's do it again. Um, I guess it must have served him well. It's um, an amusement park ride I would not get a lightning lane pass for or anything like that, that's for <laughs> definitely sure. Definitely not. I would have hard passed path. on all of these <laughs> experiences. <path>. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. What was the most exhilarating uh, part of those scenes for you? I mean, you, you mentioned the silence on the moon. W was that yeah. it for you? Or was, was it something else that he sort of got to experience, you know, in the, it, through the eyes of the movie? Yeah. Um, I, I thought they did a great job highlighting those really special moments about being an astronaut and being in space, you know, starting with the, the space plane at the, at the beginning of the movie where he kind of achieves um, being above the atmosphere and sees yeah. that kind of atmospheric curve around Earth, and you just you can tell he he 
thinks that's amazing and is very cool. And very few people have gotten to experience that. So it's those kind of moments, that one. And then, um, you know, later on the moon, kind of seeing earth from the moon perspective, uh, was pretty cool. Yeah. So there's a scene where Armstrong, uh, midway through the film, is talking to a U.S. senator at like a schmoozy event and telling him how amazing it was that just 60 years after the first powered flight period, you know, they're flying rockets into space. What are your takeaways from from that sentiment that that he he made clear in the movie? Yeah, I think it is amazing. And it, it really struck me what they were able to achieve at NASA um, with with the technology limitations of the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, thinking about this movie, but thinking about Hidden Figures, the book and movie in the background, mm-hmm. too, thinking about the human calculators, the people who were sitting doing the calculations for, um, you know, all the orbital trajectories and things that supported these missions. And um, so I, it, it is amazing. It's amazing what they were able to achieve for the technology at the time. Um, and I was feeling bad for Neil. He got the brush off from that particular senator in that scene. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, you know, no appreciation, you know, in Washington for the amazing uh, <laughs> technology change that we see. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, uh, kind of the movie is about Neil Armstrong, and we remember most people know who Neil Armstrong is, and nobody knows who that's. They don't even name the senator. He's just the <laughs> name senator, right? So True. maybe he's, he's he got the last laugh there. So, you know, same idea. Are we going to look back 50 years from now at Marvel at how quickly technology has advanced in some other area. What do you think? Oh, for sure. I think we're seeing all sorts of technological change. Um, And it's amazing what space companies are doing now that maybe would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. Um, You know, I I work at Planet, as you mentioned, and just thinking about Planet's trajectory, uh, we were among the first to put up, um, you know, kind of a a number, a constellation of low Earth orbit satellites um, that really enabled us to do to offer a daily line scan of the Earth, and that just would have been unthinkable at the time, you know, at Neil Armstrong's time, that a private company could could do that. Um, and you know, even since then, we've seen technology progress, and um, it's it's really cool to be a, a space lawyer and working with these companies that are doing such great things. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're seeing that technological change in other areas too. AI comes to mind, um, you know, think about what's happened even in the last year yeah. um, with the abilities of AI and, and all of the, uh, the, the possibilities there in terms of research and, um, and just all, all, all sorts of, of awesome and interesting applications. And also, you know, with, with great power and great technological change, change comes great responsibility. And so thinking about the implications for how, how law and policy need to react to. A subplot of the movie is the distance that grows between Armstrong and his wife, Janet, who's played by Claire Foy in the movie. She, for those who don't recognize that name, she played uh, Queen Elizabeth in The Crown in the first couple seasons. Uh, wh- what did you make of the final scene of the movie where Armstrong's in quarantine after coming home from landing on the moon and they reach out to touch hands separated by the glass. Yeah. Um, you know, as the, as I'll get to that, but as far as the broader theme of, you know, seeing how, how the family navigates the husband going to the moon and putting himself in these extremely risky situations 
um, you know, we, we talk a lot about work-life balance uh, in our culture now. And like that, that's the extreme, right? It's just yeah. um, incredibly intense. You see Armstrong, you know, lose colleagues. And the fact that he was willing to continue to put himself on the line, um, you know, both, both incredible and also, um, you know, as, as a wife and mother, scary. You know, I'm yeah. like telling my husband, I'm really glad that's not your job. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, you know, I think you you can't you can't expect someone to um, to participate in in their job at that level and not feel like there's going to be some impact on the family too. Um, so it was that was interesting and tough to see, but I'm glad they highlighted that as part of the movie too. Um, yeah. Help us get to know Armstrong and his family a little bit better, maybe than we did before. Yeah, um, I mean that was. As- yeah, yeah I mean, that was that was definitely one of the things that you were talking about before. You didn't know about Armstrong. I think that that was for me. It was was seeing that was seeing this side that he that he lost a daughter um, in 1961, and that you know he you know when I was looking up researching for this that that he, him and Janet got divorced years later. Like he he remarried after after this. Not I'm sure in the movie, um, but you know just just more things about his personal life that I I wasn't even aware of. Um, so that that was that was interesting for sure. Um, you know, to me, he was he was a man of his time. Right. A little bit. He was one of these like strong, silent types and like, you know, not showing emotion throughout the movie until he gets to the moon um, as 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 portrayed in the movie. But also, I think that uh, attitude was sort of what got him through the various uh, abnormalities that happened when he was in space. In other words, he was he kept his cool because he was just so hyper-focused on the mission, for better or for worse, at home. And I think the movie did a good job of portraying the trade-offs of that and what that meant. Um, in other words, you know, I don't know if it, if it wasn't Neil Armstrong, I don't know another personality type who could have handled that, but it also took an effect on his home. So there were sacrifices that were made. That's my yeah. takeaway. So yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. I also I was struck by you know you think about Neil Armstrong and you you know prior to this movie I would have said that probably the most difficult thing he ever had to do was figure out how to get himself and to the moon and back um, with the support of NASA and his colleagues. But um, man, losing a child that that had to be probably the hardest thing um, as a parent to see and. Um, I don't know. I was really touched too. Uh, not. I, I hope you you give the appropriate spoiler alerts at the outset of the podcast. But he, uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, he he has a bracelet of his daughter, uh, of his daughter's, uh, the daughter that he lost in 1961, and um, and he he. I don't know if this is true or not, but in the movie, he he leaves it. He leaves that bracelet on the moon, um, kind of mark his daughter's passing, and um, I thought that was a, a pretty special moment in the film as well. Yeah, it was definitely it was the closure that he had been sort of avoiding the grief he had, but he had been avoiding throughout the movie. You know, I think the movie was trying to say that that death sort of was the, you know, the original impetus for him to put his head down even more and become this, you know, allow him to be the first person on the moon. A lot of it, though, was just fate in general. Right. Like you mentioned, he lost colleagues who were supposed to go before him and in the, in the, in the tragic test accident uh, where three of his colleagues 
we're, you know, we're, we're in that fire and that, you know, yeah. that they talk they, about they, scary scenes. Ooh, exactly. Was... Yeah. yeah. Talk about claustrophobic and scary scene, but you know, just, just tragic. They, there was that, they didn't show this part, but he lost two of his other colleagues who were just on a flight that crashed um, because of fog. So he was, it was just a, it was eight years leading up to this. That was just marked by, by, by tragedy after tragedy. Um, and I think that, you know, in the movie, they kind of show him getting more closed and closed off as 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 these occur. He sort of, you know, in in the in the test, he loses sort of his best friend, his confidant, the one who was trying to get him to open up. Um, Ed White, I think, was his name. Um, my take. Tell me what you think of this at the end of the movie, where he's touching hands with with his wife through the glass. Is that? Um, you know, he's, he's taken this journey, he's landed on the moon and they, he comes back with Buzz Aldrin, they're in quarantine and they're watching all the press clips at this point, right? They're watching the news coverage and how, you know, half a billion people watched it on television and it's a gigantic news story and a gigantic accomplishment. Um, and then he's behind this glass and it's almost, uh, to me, the glass represented that they may never, ever be as close as they were perhaps at the beginning and that in other words he's almost like a museum figure now he's like america's figure now he's he's lost that's as close as they're gonna get um thoughts on that <laughs> that's yeah. a tough question <laughs> that is a tough question um you know i wasn't thinking about it at all that way but i um i could see from a, a director's point of view for instance yeah. that that could be certainly a message that they'd be trying to communicate uh, I was thinking more about the family dynamics at that moment and um, thinking about what it meant between the two of them. Um, yeah. You know, Claire Foy is almost reluctant to approach uh, the glass. I think, you know, the feelings of uh, that she must have felt of both, I'm so glad you're back home and that you're safe and that my kids still have a dad. And also, I'm so incredibly angry at you <laughs> for putting your life on the line this way over and over again. Um, right. You know, I'm kind of thinking about all those emotions she must have been feeling. And I don't know, his um, his outreach to the glass almost looked like an apology to me. Like, I'm sorry I put you through this. <laughs> and yeah. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be back. Yeah, no, um, that's true. And, and, you know, that... that that scene played out a lot during COVID, right? I think, you know, in 2018, there was there hadn't been a global pandemic yet. And post this, that's unfortunately the scene that played out for a lot of people, you know, it, you know, being in quarantine and being separated from, from loved ones. So it, it I, I think if people were watching that movie now for the first time, they might have a different, some might have a different viewpoint on that than they did when that movie, when the movie first came out. Yeah. Um, the movie makes a point, to show how before the moon landing, Russia was basically kicking the U.S.'s butt on most major milestones in the space race, right? So, how does how does that resonate today? Um, is there still uh, are there analogs to this, or or has you know commercial space and commercial other sectors sort of taken over? Is there an, is there another race that would sort of capture the country's imagination like there was back then? I don't know if we could ever replicate that moment in time. Um, I do think that there continues to be uh, geopolitical challenges and geopolitical tensions in the space area. And, um, and I think we do see some uh, continued, uh, I, don't, I don't know, pressure, challenge, 
um, as a result of those geopolitical tensions kind of urging the U.S. forward to be to continue to, to lead in global technology, whether that be in space or in other areas. And so I still th I do think it plays a role. But as far as that kind of particular moment in time, the, the space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in particular, um, probably we'll never see anything quite exactly like that uh, ever again. Yeah. Um, you know, people always talk about today and, you know, how we're living in the most divided time era uh, ever. I didn't live in the 60s, but I've read about them a lot. And the 60s sure seem pretty divided. So the optimist in me has to think that if the moon landing could sort of unite factions of the United States and kind of come together for this like achievement of mankind, maybe there'll be something like that soon or in the future for us today to, to help everybody come together, uh, you know, sort of uh, to to champion something that humans are doing. But, you know, maybe that maybe uh, maybe that's an overly optimistic view. But if history, if past is prologue, maybe that'll happen. So. We can always uh, hope there's no shortage of technology to inspire uh, out there today. And so I I like the optimistic view and I, I share that. Yeah. And we're going back to the moon, right? So the Artemis missions are happening, and I think that I think I think the second one is scheduled for 2024, which is the last test mission, and uh, then I think we're we're supposed to land four people on the moon after that, including the first woman and the first person of color. So that's exciting all around. You look at the NASA page, and it's a bunch of white men, right, who've landed on the moon. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully that's, uh, hopefully that's going to change, uh, change soon and inspire a, a new, a new generation uh, coming up here to, to think about what we could do with the moon and, and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, there, it, just in the space sector, generally, there seems to be a lot of excitement about the moon, uh, you know, planet and, and myself, we're, we're focused more on earth um, and, and imaging Earth, but um, you know we have colleagues who are working on cislunar communications, uh, yeah. for instance, in anticipation of of more activity on the Moon, and that's going to be something discussed at this World Radio Communications Conference that's kicking off in Dubai here uh, soon. So um, there's a lot of excitement, uh, new excitement, I'd say, or renewed excitement about the Moon, and it will be um, really interesting to watch. You know. Uh... Nothing to do with the movie, but I just had to ask you because you know you you are at, at an Earth imaging company. Um, how cool is it to see all these pictures from the James Webb Telescope, knowing like what you all do, imaging Earth and seeing like it's kind of facing outward? You know, this like awesome sensor on this telescope. It how is, is that? amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, I can't, I, I, I wish I could tap my engineering colleagues here uh, <laughs> to appreciate the technological piece of yeah. you know, everything having to align just right um, on that telescope in order to get the kinds of amazing images that it's been able to return. Um, but I, I think it's fascinating. It's already spurred so much additional, you know, scientific discussion and upended theories we've held for a long time about uh, deep space and the beginnings of the universe. And um, so I, I haven't been following it super closely, but um, I love that when I read, you know, space trade press, there's usually something new about what James Webb has returned. Um, yeah. And I do, I do have a deep appreciation for the technology and, and all of the um, work that went into that mission and, and um, everything that needed to happen in order for that to align just right. 
given you know what what I see um, at Planet and the effort that goes into to Earth imaging. That's right. That's right. All right. Any final thoughts on First Man? Anything I should have asked? No, I think you captured it. Um, thanks for the opportunity to chat about it. It's probably not a movie I I necessarily would have picked if I wasn't specifically looking for space movies uh, for for your podcast. And I'm really glad I watched it. I took a lot away from it. So thanks for for the suggestion. It was cool, and my kids watched it because of the Barbie movie because they were like, "Oh, Ryan Gosling, I, I'm in." That's next on my list. <laughs> All right, Danielle. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Good to be here. Thanks, Henry. Thanks for listening to Hosted Payload, and thanks to Danielle and Jillian for joining us for this episode. For all your satellite law and telecommunications, media, and technology needs, visit us at wiley.law. I'm Henry Gola. <laughs>